0: Welcome to Postpartum Stories with Steph, candid conversations with mums and sometimes dads about the precious yet chaotic time that is life after birth. My name is Steph, woman, warrior, wife, mother, coffee lover and feminist. I'm a postpartum doula in Melbourne and you can find me on Instagram at postpartum underscore with underscore Steph with a ph through this podcast i will chat to women and birthing people in a real and raw way about their postpartum experience so sit back grab a cuppa even if it's cold take off your bra and enjoy On today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Julia Jones. Julia is a postpartum jeweler and she runs a business called Newborn Mothers, uh, where she teaches other women how to become postpartum jewelers. She's also written books and she's just very well versed in the postpartum space. On today's episode, we talk about um, baby brain, uh, not just the baby brain that you think when you hear that term. Uh, we talk about the village, how we've lost our village, how to get it back. Um, we talk about how the patriarchy has affected uh, postpartum for women. Yeah, we talk about a lot of things. So it's a very uh, chock full episode and I'm looking forward to you listening to it, um, Julia has got a couple of books that she's written as well um, that are available on her website. You can also download um, the first chapter of her book for free. Um, I'll leave all of those details in the show notes as well as where you can um, get in touch with Julia as well. Uh, as always, please leave a review and five-star rating if you've enjoyed today's episode. Um because that's how we're able to get this podcast into new listeners' ears. Uh, I hope that you are doing well wherever you are in the world and um, if you're in Melbourne especially, uh, I hope that you're coping through. uh, I think it'll be week three of stage four lockdown. So sending so much love and I hope that you enjoy today's episode. So how did you get into postpartum do all the work? Well, I, you know, I can
1: tell the long version or the short version. I'll, I'll try and tell the long version quickly, but <laughs> it sort of started very early on, even in my childhood, because I grew up away from any family. My parents emigrated to Australia from England just a few years before I was born. So they didn't have any grandparents around or uncles and aunties. Um, They actually didn't even know very many people here Mm -hmm. um, when I was born. They didn't intend to actually live and stay here forever. They were just traveling and then kind of just never went home. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So what that meant is I kind of grew up knowing that it was kind of a bit hard not having family around. I, I, you know, I felt that you know, for my mum, I was born by emergency cesarean. And, you know, she always said that it was really hard for my dad to get time off work. Mm -hmm. You know, his boss was very unsupportive. Um, Yeah. And just that feeling like there should be more support than this. I think I kind of grew up, I didn't, and I had a beautiful childhood. I've got you know, gorgeous parents. And we really didn't find our own family. We've got, you know, friends who we spend every Christmas with and who, we've, you know, lots of friends who we've spent known for our whole lives. I still live in the same town mm-hmm. um, where I was born now. So I think what that really taught me is that the importance of community and social support when you have um, family. Mm. So I travelled a lot before I had kids and then as soon as I was ready to have babies, I actually moved back to my home town again Just I live just a couple of blocks from mum and dad and we yeah we do a lot together (laughs) Mm.
0: so you're completely aware of how important it is to have that village and that sense of community from a young age
1: I think so I think because we didn't have it um and had to make a lot of effort to find that kind of support ourselves Mm. um and you know and I do have friends who I would consider to be you know as close as cousins and things like that but yeah yeah i think I think that was always like a strong value of mine was that idea of of community and and how important it is to have a village to raise a child. so that's the very beginning of the story <laughs> mm.
0: um, So how do you kind of define for people who might not know how do you define the fourth trimester?
1: Well, the fourth trimester is an interesting term. the very small like semantic problem I have with it is that it only refers really to the baby like when you talk about trimesters you think of what's happening to the baby and the fourth trimester is the idea that the baby is having this experience that they need to be swaddled and you know Mm. shushed and they like to have the sounds of the womb and the you know same kind of environment and, and the peaceful you know calm experience which is great and all very important but then we sometimes kind of forget that the mums also need really special care um, during the fourth trimester. So that's sort of my slight little, sometimes we use that term only to really think about the baby. So I always just like to add that element in that, um, that actually the mums are the ones who really need a lot of care Mm. physically, emotionally um, going through the biggest transition of their lives usually. And um, I really believe that if we take, proper care of mums and and social responsibility for families during those early weeks, um, the babies will be naturally, intuitively well cared for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like they don't, I mean, obviously you do need, (laughs) you need to feed them and change them and stuff like that, but there's sort of there there needs to be that a, a bigger focus on parents and mothers specifically in that, in those first few weeks and months.
1: Yeah. And when a mom is peaceful and happy and relaxed when she's well fed and she's getting enough sleep because she's got a village supporting her, um, then, you know, all that naturally gets passed on to the baby as well.
0: Mm. So you've you've spoken a lot about um, baby brain and stuff like that in the training that you do. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because obviously when we hear the term baby brain, it's usually in. derogative derogative way or you know it's about mum sort of being really forgetful and clumsy can you talk a little bit about um how you've incorporated it into your training
1: yeah so i would say for like the first almost probably like five years that i was a doula myself i did not have this um knowledge and, and understanding that i do now baby brain and it was definitely the missing piece once i learned about this new perspective on baby brain It was just such an eye-opening experience. I was like, why doesn't everyone talk about this? Like, how could I have been working in postpartum for so long? I've done all these different trainings and no one has ever mentioned this, you know. So it's become really a very key part of my work. Because before that, yeah, I always thought that the patriarchy had made up this idea of baby brain to kind of keep women in the kitchen. You know, like I hadn't really thought about it any more deeply deeply than that and then it was actually a pediatrician and lactation consultant called Christina Smiley and she was the one for the first time who introduced me to this idea that um, well when a baby is born so is a mother and that actually the brain changes that we go through are so profound they can be seen on brain scans. It's physiological changes to to your brain. and that it's not necessarily a bad thing, that actually those changes can make us happier and healthier. Um, They help with maternal adjustment. They help with us, you know, in honing and refining our parenting skills. And even more than that, I think we could bring a lot of those skills that we get in kind of empathy and understanding body language and communications and that kind of thing into workplaces you know, leadership, politics, so many different aspects of our life would really benefit from us actually embracing um, those values, those qualities.
0: Mm. And so what do some of the scans show? Because it's, is it a change in brain matter? Yeah,
1: there's quite a few changes. One of the kind of freakier changes is a, a reduction of grey matter, which is kind of scary because you kind of think, oh my gosh, my brain actually physically shrinks it gets (laughs) smaller um so that's kind of a worry Mm. but don't worry it all works out fine in the end (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the majority of changes can be fit into two broad categories i call them learning and loving learning is the changes in in um uh plasticity so the way that our brain pathways become ready to learn new skills and and embed new knowledge, new experiences and prepare us for our new role. Uh, And then there's the loving changes which are related to oxytocin and love hormones, which will um, do things like increase our empathy and our connection and our ability to read, nonverbal cues and and that kind of thing.
0: Mm, So there's a real purpose behind it because... Obviously, you've got a new baby, you want to be able to connect and understand what they're trying to communicate to you without having language. So that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, What do you think some of the biggest issues are facing uh, new mums?
1: Um, I think in our culture, it's social isolation. And I think the pandemic has really brought that to a head. I think Mm. people were isolated before, but now we've realised just how important that is. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and in a way, what's been interesting for me is there are many times when, as a mother of very small babies, I felt isolated and excluded from society. And I'm sure most mothers have this experience at some point. It's difficult for us to participate in our careers, in our social life, to have hobbies, you know, because babies just aren't welcome, Mm. in our in our world in the same way as they are in other cultures. Um, So the interesting thing about the pandemic was then seeing that other people are having an experience of this as well. Mm. And I was thinking the difference is when it's happening to everyone, then we adjust society. Like now we've made these quite big changes, like having telehealth, um, lots of groups and and learning opportunities online and and opportunities to connect and Mm. communicate with people online. And I was like, gosh, wouldn't it have been so nice if we'd had that when it was only mums who were lonely or only people who had disabilities or are elderly you know like there are a variety of vulnerable people who are stuck at home all the time not just during the pandemic so Mm. in a way what this has done is just given us a a much broader understanding of how important this issue is
0: yeah and i mean i know that it's it's different in different states around australia um in melbourne we're in stage four which is quite extreme and probably more extreme isolation than in early postpartum because there's just no opportunity to connect with people and new mums in person. Um, Do you have any advice or any, um, yeah, any advice for women who are sort of approaching um, early postpartum, whether they're pregnant or, you know, they are in early postpartum in Melbourne?
1: Yeah, I think really the the main thing is to really acknowledge the sacrifice. This is, you know, in our lifetimes, we've never really had to make big sacrifices for collective good, not really since mm. the war in our culture has that been a part of our kind of understanding our social contract. Um, so it is a really big ask. Um, and also the research does show that um, women with small babies, pregnant women, uh, the most vulnerable to the mental health impacts of, of um, literally, of quarantine. When they've, when they've done research into other um, epidemics um, throughout time. So you know, it's not this. It's, it's a nice idea. We're all in this together, but it's not actually true. There are people who are going to be more vulnerable. So for all the mums listening, I, I guess I just want to say a really big thank you for, for that sacrifice. And I think sometimes knowing that you're doing this for the greater good um, can sometimes help us to feel more, um, I don't know, more supported, like there's more meaning, um, behind what we're being asked to do. So I think just having that perspective that, you know, that there are a lot of people who are really grateful to you right now for making that sacrifice. Mm. Uh, And I hope that kind of helps people to feel a little bit, I don't know, just a little bit more
0: happy with, with what they're being asked to do. Mm. It's so tough. Um... In a world where we're pandemic free, like we were, (laughs) let's say, six months ago, um, do you have any sort of um, or what's the one thing that you would encourage uh, new mums to sort of put in place for their postpartum besides hiring a postpartum doula? Because we all know how important that is. (laughs) Um, But is there anything that you would sort of recommend or any advice in that sense?
1: Well, I think it's kind of the same pandemic or not. And it's really just building your village. I think one of the real problems with the pandemic is when we can't connect in real life, we end up spending far too much time on social media, having these like, I don't know, hyper polarized conversations and arguments and mm. really like black and white thinking and, and very shallow and superficial discussions about things, you know, but It's even if you can meet on Zoom and actually talk to a person, you know, or talk to your neighbor over the fence or something like that. That's still going to be a better level of of like real heart to heart connection. So I think that's true. You know, obviously without the pandemic, ideally we could meet in mothers' groups. Um, And I think finding a good mothers' group, which is where I'm kind of going with this, is Mm. really one of such an important and underrated. Thing. Um, we can't even Australia often get lumped into like a mother's group with people in our postcode but they're not necessarily people who we really get along well with um, or they're not very well facilitated groups or sometimes they're just like too big and overwhelming so mm. take the time to look around for a mum's group where you feel really comfortable and, and at home and safe to talk about all the ups and downs of motherhood because there's so much emotional stuff going on Um, so, you know, if you're stuck at home right now, there are still some really, really beautiful online mother's circles, um, being run at the moment. So you can maybe start to connect to people that way if you can't get out of
0: the house. Yeah, definitely try and find your people because I know like for my, for me in mother's group, um it was nice to talk about, you know, okay, how old's your baby? My baby's rolling over and all this sort of stuff. But then after you've sort of had those conversations, if you don't really have anything else in common or if you're parenting in a different way to what someone else is doing, it's really hard to kind of continue that relationship. So it's always good to sort of find people who are um, on a similar path as you.
1: I think so. And I think if a group is really well facilitated, it doesn't matter so much if people are parenting differently Mm. um, because I think a really good facilitator can manage to still make sure things stay really kind and calm and and respectful mm. um but the problem is it's usually not facilitated mm. is it usually it's just like a bunch of mums all lumped in together and one of them's kind of bragging that a baby's sleeping through the night <laughs> and the other one's being really competitive about breastfeeding
0: and yeah. you know like it just yeah. doesn't
1: you know it doesn't matter what your choices in it are it's just
0: not a nice feeling yeah and no one wants to put their hand up and say I feel like I'm failing
1: (laughs) yeah exactly because it's become this really hyper
0: independent competitive kind of yeah Mm. vibe um you mentioned the village earlier can you talk a little bit about um I guess how we've lost the village and how we can sort of um recreate it I suppose
1: yeah it's an interesting topic because village is obviously not going to look the same in the 21st century Mm. you know like it's not going to be like mud huts and, (laughs) and extended families because you know this is probably the first thing people say when i talk about villages they're like but i don't live anywhere near my parents or they work or you know we don't get along or whatever so they don't have grandparents around but your village can be made up of so many different people Some of those people might be paid like doulas or cleaners or nannies. Some of those people will be peers like the mother's circles and groups that we've been talking about. Um, But also I think we underestimate the importance of having, um, you know, when they do research into loneliness, one of the biggest indicators is actually the number of people you just smile at in the street. Whether you know them very well and can have a deep and meaningful with them isn't necessarily the most important thing but if you can walk out of your front door and you know just go for a walk around your neighborhood and there's people you can smile and wave and chat with that's actually Um, you know, research has shown a really, really important aspect of our village that I don't think people talk about enough. So get to know your neighbours. If you can have a street party, if you're in lockdown, then maybe start a WhatsApp group um, of people who are on your street. So you can just look out for each other and, and chat and get to know people who are hyper local to you.
0: And everyone stops you when you've got a new baby in a pram. Everyone wants to talk about or look at the baby. Um, So, yeah, it's a good way to kind of meet new people. Um, Why do you think we've lost that village mentality that we had, you know, when we were in mud huts and with our families?
1: Yeah, it's such a hard one. I think there's so many different things that have caused it. And obviously, you could kind of summarise it with patriarchy.
0: Mm, <laughs> um damn patriarchy ruining yeah, everything. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. It's kind of like the catch-all villain at the moment, isn't it? But yeah. yeah, but I mean, no one exactly knows. And a lot of the stuff I've, I've read is pointed back to... Um, Uh, the Industrial Revolution, when a lot Mm -hmm. of nuclear families had to move away from their extended family um, for work. So for the first time, they were living in nuclear families, which wasn't really the norm before that in a lot of places. Um, It's not like 100% true, because it's not true in all cultures that that's what happened. Um, But what is true is that definitely humans were designed for something called alloparenting, which is where we share the care of our children. We trust each other enough that um, our children in traditional hunter-gatherer uh, human societies would have been cared for between about 18 uh, eight and 14 different adult carers mm. um, every day which is quite a mind-blowing number when now we live in a culture where it's like 99% mom and occasionally dad gives the baby a bath mm. and you see grandma at Christmas time you know like mm. for a lot of families that's it so the idea of having 14 adults who might you know pass the baby around and have a loving bond with that baby it's you know, it's hard to even picture what that mm. looks like. Um, obviously, we're not going to get that back. Like, it's not going to look like that again. But just mm. knowing that no wonder that's hard, having that understanding, like, oh, it's okay that I'm struggling because this isn't normal. Um, I think that can help us to uh, overcome some of our fear of looking like a failure um, and help us to actually reach out for some more support.
0: Mm. What was it like for you? So when, when you started as a postpartum doula, did you have, um, did you have children yet?
1: No, when I first did my training and I had a few Pratt clients, I hadn't had children myself. Mm
0: -hmm. So what was it like for you when you, um, had your first baby and you were in that postpartum? Was it what you expected or, you know, did it sort of change the way you viewed things or how did that go?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think the main, there were two kind of big learning curves. One was I thought you could plan things more. I (laughs) thought if you had like a postpartum plan, then you'd be all right. I Mm. realized that you just can't plan anything in motherhood, that the Mm. greatest lesson of motherhood is really probably just giving up on perfectionism and going with the flow. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, So that was a big learning curve. The second big learning curve was that you can't be your own doula. Um, That even though I had a lot of the knowledge and skills, I still needed someone else to come into that space, both emotionally and physically, because physically I just didn't have time to like cook all of these like beautiful meals and, and, you know, care for myself in the way Mm. that I needed. And emotionally I was involved in my own situation. You can't be your own counselor, Mm. you know, like I needed someone to come in who wasn't in that shit storm and (laughs) just say, Hey, you know, how are you feeling today? And and that would have just been so good because even though I had a lot of support from my parents and my husband and that kind of thing, um, they were all emotionally involved in the situation. So it's a bit different having someone neutral, yeah. and non-judgmental, you know, without any stake in the baby to just say, how are you? You know, mm. how are you feeling?
0: Yeah, coming at it with a bit of objectivity. And yeah. Um, I mean, you always... You never take on your own advice or you never sort of, like even if you were to think, oh, I should really go and have a nice bath for an hour and, you know, listen to some nice music, you're never going to do that to yourself. Like any advice you would give to a friend in early motherhood, you're probably not going to take on yourself.
1: No, exactly. It's much harder, isn't it, to like, you know, like whenever it's kind to ourselves as we are to others. So like I might Mm. be kind to a friend and say, oh, you should go and have a bath or something like that or it Mm. seems like you need a break or let me bring you dinner but for myself it would be much harder for me to do that
0: Mm. what are some of the um the common issues other than isolation that you see new mothers um dealing with um i think isolation really is one of the big ones and it kind of
1: incorporates a whole lot of other smaller issues but I think really it's this idea of, um, hyper independence, this idea that we have to do everything on our own or that we're a failure and we're a bad mum. I think there's so much shame and, and guilt. Um, I was just doing having a chat with someone else or so, um, I was interviewing Leona Dawson for my podcast and she was saying when she feels like a shit mum, she watches um, one of those shows where they, the cops pull people over and breathalyze them. And then she's like, I'm not doing too bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but we all in our minds think where this like terrible parent, you know, we have so much guilt and shame about very minor things, you know, Um mm. So I think that's what one of our most difficult things to overcome is the feeling of being a good enough mom, you know, knowing that you are loving and caring uh, and accepting that it takes more than one adult to raise a human child is it's a really hard barrier to overcome.
0: Yeah. With a lot of the women that I speak to, um, most of them have gone through a period of believing that they need to sacrifice absolutely everything about themselves you know their work their physical health their mental health in order to be a good mother because you know they're sacrificing absolutely everything for their children and I think um a lot of mothers sort of go through this kind of period of martyrdom where you know they need to put all their needs last is that something that you sort of come across quite often
1: Yeah. And I would say dads never do that. Like Mm, who's met a dad who feels like they have to give up their entire career, all of their hobbies, their exercise, their diet, their sleep, you know, Mm. their friendships. Men just don't think like that. There's no such thing
0: as dad guilt.
1: (laughs) No, no. So I think we really need to get over that and Mm. um, accept that it takes many adults to raise a child. And if you need to get a nanny, or if you need to use childcare, or if you need someone to cook for you, or you need to get your shopping home delivered, or you need to have a cleaner, you know, like there are so many parts of that role that you can outsource. I often try and encourage women to feel like the CEO of their home. Mm. Um, The CEO doesn't do all the jobs. They just make sure that they get done and they find the right people and delegate. So I know some people can't afford to to pay for a lot of that help. But if you put a lot of effort into that village building, getting to know your neighbors, having a great mum's group, there's actually a lot of things you can um, get support with without paying. And a lot of things that become really fun. Like if you get together with girlfriends and and do, you know, a big baking day and fill each other's freezers, you know, that's a really fun, enjoyable way to lessen the load. Also, if we can get over our own ideas of how, like, clean the house should be, then Mm -hmm. we'd be happy to have friends over more often and um, not worry if we're folding laundry while we're drinking tea and the babies are playing, you know, this idea that we have to do work separately from play, I think is ruining a lot of our our happiness.
0: Mm. And it's the patriarchy playing up again, because if we, if women all think that we're shit and we shouldn't be working and we're feeling all this guilt, then we're staying small and we're not taking over the world. So
1: (laughs) that's exactly right. It's exactly right. When we've got this expectation of how we should be, it keeps us very, in a very small box. I interviewed my midwife, my mother's midwife from when I was born. Her name was Teresa Oh
0: wow!
1: in um, my book. And she talks about this great story. She was an old, one of those like call the midwives on a bicycle riding around <laughs> London and Northern England back in the day. And she said that um, she, she would, easily know who had depression and it wasn't and it was not by how messy their house was it was the opposite so she'd go to mm. one person's house and they'd be like you know full face of makeup the carpets vacuumed the babies on a routine um, and that would actually be the mum that she was worried about and then she'd go down to the other end of town where there were like cloth nappies hanging on the line and babies crawling around with no nappies on but lots of mums lots of community you didn't know which house they were at she said she'd do a house call and they'd be like oh no the mum's down at number 10 you know with all of her friends
0: Mm. and
1: although their house was messy and their you know the kids were a bit chaotic and things were noisy and all of that kind of thing but she could tell that they were happy and and supported and doing it together Mm. Um, I thought that was a really nice kind of yeah a nice story to sort of illustrate this idea that looking good doesn't mean that you
0: are feeling oh, yeah. good. hundred percent. I used to, when I was at mother's, my son's two now, but when I was at mother's group, I'd be like, oh, I've got to put makeup on because, you know, people will think that I'm failing or that Oaping. I'm not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I, I remember once this, one of the other mums said to me, how do you have time to put makeup on? And I was just like, oh, I, you know, I just, I just do it. I hadn't showered. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't have time to do other things. It was just like, yeah, I was, I definitely played into that role only for a a week or two. And then I was like, yeah, no, I can't do this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's, that's that ultimately that letting go, isn't it? Realizing like you have to pick what's important to you. And for some people that might be putting on a bit of lippy Mm -hmm. and for others people, it's not, you know, so you're not going to be able to do everything. Just, just pick your priorities.
0: (laughs) Yeah. How do you prepare? um, How do you prepare dads for postpartum? or do you do that?
1: Um, As a doula, our role and our sort of primary caregiving responsibilities are to the mother. We consider her our primary client. So of course, we help with the dynamics of the whole family and adjustment. Um, But I wouldn't say I specifically work with dads. I think there's definitely a need for that. And I'd love some more men to perhaps um, step into that work. Mm. Um, But no, I'd say like there's kind of in general two, two types of dads that I would regularly work with one uh, really loving hands on. They trust their wife to know what's best um, and, you know, she says, this is what I need. And this is what our family needs that, you know, this dad will be like super supportive. So that's awesome. Then there's another kind of dad who's like a bit annoyed with his hysterical wife and is hoping that if he pays for a doula, it'll just like keep no her way. out of his way. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Which is difficult. Um, it's difficult because often that kind of dad won't come to any of the appointments or, you know, you can't really get him on board with boundaries or visitors or village building or any of those other kind of things. Cause it's really great if dads can get stuck into that kind of stuff. But,
0: mm.
1: you know, I don't know if they're there, it's great, but I'd say it's kind of not within my control if the dad's open to that or not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I understand. And it, I mean, I think there is still this like stereotype of some dads who just aren't super present, you know, with their partners or their children, and it's like, it's 2020, guys. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Is this really the up. best we can do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how, um, newborn mothers, your um postpartum doula training came about.
1: Yeah, it was kind of by accident, actually. Um, I was a doula myself and I did content marketing. So I had an email list and I had a blog and that kind of thing, even though I was only doing local work. But what that meant was that people around the world started finding my website and I used to get just random emails going, Oh, you love the sound of what you do. Is there anyone like you and in South Africa, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'd be like, Can you come to
0: South Africa, please? Yes, I
1: don't know. Um, I'm just, Julia in Fremantle, you know, how would I know? Um, At the same time, we also didn't have when I was starting out any local postpartum doula training. We actually don't again, we did for a few years and it's stopped now. Um, But there was no local training. So I also had people in my area who perhaps were birth doulas or wanted to be postpartum doulas and were like, Where do I learn about this stuff? I had to do all my study online. Um, I actually flew in a a trainer, a donor trainer once to Perth and got a bunch of people together because I was like, someone teach me what to do, you know. Mm. Mm. Um, So I really had to kind of figure that out on my own. But once I had and once I was getting clients and all these other people were like, how do I do that? So it was kind of, I never thought I would teach it. Sort of just happened that that that's what people were asking for. Um, and then, yeah, from then again, naturally the next step was to put it on online. Um, so now that's all I do. I actually don't see local clients, um, anymore. I don't, I've got three young kids, so I don't really have time to do two jobs, training and, Mm. um, being a doula myself. So I mostly just teach now.
0: Mm. That's amazing though. So how many women have, um, have come through your course? Nearly a thousand. Oh, wow. Now. Do you ever get any, probably, I was going to say, do you ever get any male dollars?
1: <laughs> no. I often wonder about this because my website and my marketing is is very femme-centric. We talk about women a lot mm-hmm. um, and we talk a lot about women's experience of the world, you know, like conditioning from the patriarchy and money blocks that are unique to being a woman in, in this world and that kind of thing. So, but I often wonder like, would I exclude a man? I don't know. No men have ever asked if a man wanted to do my course. I don't know. I'd have to think about that because I do know some people who not, not as doers, but in general, their business is for women and they won't um, work with men. Um, so I'm not sure if I feel that way. If a man came along and said he wanted to do this work, I don't know. I'd have to wait and see what, what happens, mm. but it would definitely be interesting for me to think about that because I do feel like whilst it would be good to have more men on board with this stuff, um, I do think traditionally doulas were always women or at least were femme. Like I don't mind if they're, you know, transgender or genderqueer or anything like that. But the idea of just like a, a straight cis man wanting to be a doula, I don't know. I don't
0: know. <laughs> but I Because I, I sort of think, you know, you're bringing a feminine energy to someone's postpartum and if you're going to bring a masculine energy, it's going to be really sort of goal orientated and like, you know, very linear and I'm not sure how that would work.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's interesting. And maybe if a man was interested in being a doula, he wouldn't be like that. Maybe he would be mm-hmm. a very feminine... Man, so maybe it would, wouldn't matter. I don't think I don't you're know. ever going to have
0: to think about this. I don't think No.
1: <laughs> no. I do sometimes wonder, because you know, we talk about a lot of stuff in our community very openly, and I sometimes wonder, if there were many in there, would we feel as safe sharing what mm. we talk about? You know? Mm. I don't know. So I don't think it'll ever happen, because my marketing is so, um, so much for mothers and, and women that mm. I don't think it'll happen. (laughs) Yeah. However, you know, if men want to learn this kind of stuff, I think it's really important. I'm not sure that their end role would be a doula, but I think it, I think it would be really important for men to actually learn about the value of these feminine traits, how they can embrace them in their own lives, how they can support their wives, sisters, mothers through these kinds of transitions, you know, it'd be great if men wanted to learn.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I know that just from looking at your um, social media, you've got a focus on um, food in postpartum and how that can be quite healing. Can you talk a little bit about, um, about what you do in that space?
1: Yeah, food was kind of one of my first um, kind of pathways into postpartum. I learned um, Ayurvedic postpartum care. hmm in a course that doesn't exist anymore. My teacher passed away sadly a few years ago, but when I learned food was really one of the main things that um, I really loved doing. It was before I'd learned about um, baby brain, which Mm -hmm. now I think has perhaps superseded. It's now my main obsession. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so food, um, in, in a lot of traditional cultures is a very important aspect of postpartum care. And in our culture, we don't again like a lot of mums just end up eating their toddler's leftovers or something from the freezer or just cake all day at mums mm. groups. Um, so I think, you know, eating lots of veggies and eating some like really nourishing, soothing soups and comfort foods um, can make a really big difference to how safe and calm and supported and loved that mums feel.
0: Mm. And, yeah, I guess that's another stereotype of, you know, always, yeah, eating the leftovers or being hungry or not like you you become so obsessed about, you know, what your child is eating and making sure they're getting all of their nutritional needs met that you sort of just put your own to the side. Yeah, there was a
1: CanStar research um, study done quite a few years ago that found that Uh, like most parents in Australia spend more time preparing their toddler's food than they do preparing their own food. Mm. I was just so horrified by this. I was like, guys, this is all wrong. Like Mm. if you ate good food, then your toddler could just eat your good food, you Mm. know, just mash up a bit of what you're eating. But why do we put all this effort into nutritional plans for our toddlers? And then we just end up eating like a protein bar or something, you know, it's Mm. crazy.
0: Yeah. Um, No, I've gone blank with my baby brain two years later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How much do you think that, you know, capitalism and marketing and pitching to mothers that they need to have, you know, the most expensive bassinet or toy or pram or sleep training aid has kind of affected motherhood and our ability to follow our intuition?
1: Oh, yeah, a lot. <laughs> but it's some, um, I don't know, capitalism has just eked its way into absolutely everything, mm-hmm. everything we do, all of our decisions. It's hard to even imagine a world without the economic system that we currently live in. It's something I'm really interested in learning more about. There's a lot of really, really cool ideas about economics at the moment, particularly in the pandemic. Things like universal basic income and circular economies and, you know, really just cool, interesting new ideas that I'd love to um, to see embraced. Some countries are, um, you know, really seriously thinking about doing things differently. The other thing that really affects mothers in capitalism as a society is um, the need to have more babies because our our whole economy is propped up by this idea of constant growth which is obviously an impossibility but the only way we can have constant growth is by having more babies so Mm. we're we're in and it's not um in australia it's quite a unique problem because we've actually had a declining population in terms of birth rate since the 1970s so as soon as women are educated and have access to family planning um we don't replace ourselves you know like we have less and less babies Mm -hmm. so the only reason australia's population is growing is because of immigration um which is, you know, that's great. I love living in a multicultural society. But at some point, as women in other countries become more educated and have access to family planning, we, this economic system is going to be really screwed because we're going to have a huge aging population and not enough young people paying taxes to be able to, um, to care for them. So, you know, it's run its limits. Capitalism is at the end of the line. There's nowhere to go from here. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see really what the next decade or few um, hold and particularly the pandemic recovery, because I think, you know, embracing more um, community, um, more connection, more feminine ways of doing things and placing mothers and families at the centre of our sort of societies is, it's going to be really transformational.
0: Mm. It's the patriarchy. (laughs) um when do you think postpartum ends people
1: ask me this a lot and i wish i had an answer except probably just never yeah um they've done studies of the mother's brains up to two years and the changes were still there and they Mm -hmm. stopped the study so that didn't mean the brains went back to normal or the changes stopped Mm. just meant they ran out of funding probably Mm, yeah (laughs) um so a long time um and i'd say that there's brain scans, there's a computer algorithm that can look at brain scans and tell with 100% accuracy, whether it's looking at the brain of a mother or a non-mother. And so what that means is that even 20, 30, 40 years after you've had a baby, your brain still looks different. It will always look different. Postpartum mm. part of me is forever. Mm. It just means after a baby. So yeah, mm. that's the rest of your life. <laughs>
0: listening to today's episode please come over and say hi on instagram that's where i like to hang out Uh, my handle is at postpartum underscore with underscore steph s-t-e-p-h that's where i'll be sharing podcast episode updates too hope to chat to you soon